Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Polarizer podcast. My guest today is B. Jeffrey Medoff. He's a director, writer, and professor from New York City. And he also is the founder and CEO of Medoff Productions, which is a film production company that makes amazing content. And they even won a uh, Webby Award for their online videos for Victoria's Secret. So that's very cool. And Mr. Medoff is a very interesting guy who has had a couple of very interesting careers, uh, one of them being um, a clothes designer, and after that a uh, he became a uh, film director, and he wrote a book about uh, how to make a living with your ideas. The book is called Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas, and we've had a very nice talk about um, yeah how to make money with your creativity, which is one of the most difficult things in the world. There's nothing more common than the stereotype of the starving artist and this book is exactly about that and how to uh, actually make a living making your art and being creative but first before we get into that i will tell you about who sponsors the show first up is amazon and you can buy the book on amazon by the way so if you listen to the show and you click the link on the polarize.com or click the link in the show notes to the book. You will land on Amazon through our website, and that will give us a little kickback if you actually buy the book, or anything else on Amazon, but I highly recommend you buy this book. So that's sponsor number one. The second one is Alert. Alert is an allergy app for people who travel. Now, there's not a whole lot of traveling going on right now because of the whole corona thing, but it looks like that sort of winding down a little bit and I'm sure within a couple of months maybe maybe a little longer than that we'll be able to travel again and if you if you happen to travel and you happen to deal with a food allergy this app can help you with that so let's say you travel to um, let's go to Poland today let's go to Poland and you're allergic to uh, dairy peanuts and tree nuts you can just select that on the app and then select Polish and press the button and it generates a allergy card for you for the allergies that you selected in the language that you selected. So it's a dynamic allergy card generator. And it's very handy if you travel frequently to different countries with different languages. Alert, spelled A-L-L-E-R-T, on the iOS App Store. Or go to alertapp.com for more information App was recently featured in the food allergy magazine of the Netherlands, so that's kind of cool. So that, um, yeah, people people are talking about this app, so you should check it out too. Tell your friends uh, who are allergic about this app, just tell them about Alert, A-L-E-R-T, in the iOS app store. And last but not least, this podcast is sponsored by Onnit. Onnit is a health and fitness juggernaut dedicated to delivering total human optimization to its vast consumer base of athletes, thinkers, fitness gurus, and entrepreneurs. Through a wide array of products and supplements, Onnit combines cutting-edge science, earth-grown nutrients, and time-tested strategies to help people reach peak performance. Whether you are climbing mountains or biking down them, building businesses or closing sales, chasing personal records in the weight room or running a bar- <coughs> or running a marathon on it is the brand you want to have in your back pocket as one of the fastest growing health and fitness companies in the world on it refuses to bring anything but the very best to market 
whether it be energy bars, protein shakes, creatine, or their flagship product AlphaBrain, on its diverse lineup of products and supplements are backed by science and research. You can save up to 10% off by visiting onit.com and using the promo code POLARIZER. That's P-O-L-A-R-I-Z-E-R, POLARIZER. Use that on checkout on onit.com to get 10% off. Without further ado, Mr. Pete Jeffrey Miller. Where, where are you located, Dieter? Uh, I'm in uh, Rotterdam, the Netherlands. I like the, I like the, I haven't been there for a long time, but I have actually two friends. How far is that from Amsterdam? Uh, about um, one hour south. I have two friends that recently, one who moved back there uh, and another who moved there. <laughs> okay. What uh, brought them there? One who moved there, he and his girlfriend, he got a job, you know, NextWeb? I've heard of that. Yeah, that's based out of Amsterdam. Okay. They're a global group. And so he went there. He's actually from Australia. And then he lived in New York. Then he moved back to Australia, then to Amsterdam. And the other one, Justin Halsall, uh, who started his own really unique video technology that he's getting uh, funded he had worked for IBM as an ambassador. These are both, you know, uh, guys that I had met through other friends, really good people. Uh, you know, middle thirties guys, uh, Justin just and his wife just had a baby. So I think going back was also getting some support, you know, for his, uh, wife and himself having a new kid. Right. And uh, Andy was starting his own company, left IBM and was starting his own company. And so that was cool. Starting a new company right after uh, having a kid. That's a pretty uh, bold move. Yes. Yes, it was. I think I'm going to uh, do a change here. Wait a second. Oh, here we go. (laughs) That looks that looks better. Or I could just go, you know, into deep space if you like. That could be also. uh, That's kind of what the if you cut off, if you could put a lens into my forehead. That's probably what you would see inside at this point. That's a lot of stuff in there then. A lot of stuff in there. Sort of, you know, random firings, but yes, lots of stuff. Very cool photo. And do you play, uh, you, you play, um, guitar? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've I have for a long time, but, uh, just for, uh, for fun. I mean, I, I dreamt for a little bit, uh, becoming a rock star, but it just, uh, never happened. Maybe I should have read your book. <laughs> who's your who, what guitar players do you really like uh i got um i got started with um let's see i i, I first really listened a lot to uh, to the offspring you know punk and that's easy to play so that's how i uh it's more punk rock that's that's how i got into it and then uh, i became a big fan of guns and roses and eventually led zeppelin and deep purple and Mm-hmm. Um, tried a little bit of Jimi Hendrix, but that was a little bit. Uh, I always found that a little bit tough. Uh, yeah, you know, just a, just a classic rock. ZZ Top, I love ZZ Top. Um, yeah, well, they get into just such a good groove. Yeah, yeah. You know? 
And it's no, just three just guys, me. and they sound huge. <laughs> Have you ever heard Dweezil Zappa? Dweezil Zappa, no. So his father was Frank Zappa. Mm. If you ever heard of him, who was astounding and uh, an incredibly innovative guitar player and an astounding composer. And Frank died in the early 90s. Uh, pretty young. I mean, he was like 52 when he died. Uh, Dweezil is probably one of the most, I mean, I've heard lots of guitar player. I've saw, actually I saw Hendrix's first American tour. Really? When, uh, yeah. When he did the Jimi Hendrix experience. Oh, that's amazing. And, uh, it was, it was, you know, cause everybody else, when they got feedback from their amps would turn their amps down and move away. And he, he said, I'm going to play this shit, <laughs> you know? And, uh, uh, and Zappa, Frank Zappa's, when I asked, uh, what is music? And he said, any sound I can control, right. which I love, love that answer. You actually talked to Frank answer. Zappa. So I, I had, uh, yeah, not long, but a friend of mine back when I was in college produced a, a, a Zappa concert. And since he knew I was such a huge fan, he said, uh, do you, do you want to introduce them? So I got to meet them and then introduce them on stage. So that was fun. Oh, wow. And, uh, but Dweezil, his son, is one of the most astounding guitar players I've ever heard. Really? So you should, yeah, you should check him out. He's phenomenal. And he rocks the shit out of it. But he's, he's so good. Dweezil. He's just amazing. Yeah, Dweezil. D-W-E-E-Z-I-L. Okay. And he's amazing. Uh, right, I've seen him in person, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 times. He's unbelievable. All right. I'll definitely look that up. Um, what, yeah. what is your opinion of uh, uh, Captain Beefheart and his magic band? I love, I love Beefheart. Yeah. I never saw them live, but uh, so one of my favorite cuts of all time. Uh, are you familiar with Beefheart? I know uh, Trout Mask Replica. Yeah, it's the weirdest. So, it, it, it's so weird and uncomfortable to listen to, but yet you cannot not. You know, if it's yeah, I don't know. I don't even know how I would describe it. <laughs> well, you know, his he he's got it's kind of it's like that, like he gargles razor blades. Yeah, and uh, and I was at a I was at a party. God, this is probably thirty five years ago. And, and I'm talking to a couple of other guys and we're talking about music. And, uh, so I mentioned one of, one of my favorite cuts of all time. Note this down. This is awesome. Especially if you like, uh, you know, Zappa produced Beefheart. Yeah. 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 That's, that's why and, I mentioned. And, yeah. and so there's, uh, one of Zappa's best, Frank Zappa's best albums is, uh, called hot rats. Hot it's rats. an astounding, yeah, it's astounding. And my favorite cut on that uh, is a song called Willie the Pimp. Willie the Pimp. And <laughs> yeah. And Willie the Pimp uh, is, you know, Beefheart singing. Okay. And the words are, the words are great. Yeah. The words are great. And Zappa's guitar playing is just off the charts. Cool. And uh, he was, uh, he was, Amazing. So anyhow, I'm at this party 
and I'm talking to this guy and we we're talking about that cut. And he said, so do you like, you heard Beefheart's group? And I said, oh, yeah, I've, you know, I've got all their albums. I love their stuff. Uh, I said, their guitar player, I don't know how else to say it, but he, it's, it's like he's playing in a tilted room. <laughs> Everything is off, but it all works. It's just so cool because it's just so weird. I love it. And he had broken into this big smile, said, yeah, you really like his plan? And I said, yeah. Uh, I think he, that he's winged eel fingerling is what they call them. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, he said, that's me. <laughs> and I said, no shit. And he said, no, that's, it's me. And uh, that was him. And I, I, I can't, I'm blanking on his real name, but that was actually him. So that was just funny. And I, so I ended up talking to him about playing with Beefheart. What kind of guy was uh, and he? That was, was he like a weird dude or was he? Uh... No, he was uh, a, you know, he's one of these musicians, musicians. Right, right, right. You know, that his playing was so out there and the way he approached music was so out there that since since Beefheart's band, which has been a long time now, he does his own stuff. He still records and uh, he does his own stuff. And, uh, and it's cool. You know, I mean, it's out there. It's not background music. No. You know, it's not foot tap music. It's just these soundscapes and raw, ragged guitar. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And if you if you listen to it, um, like people who are not into music would think that it's just a bunch of random noise. But but if you yes. actually listen to it, they're they're playing a bunch of interesting stuff, but they just mix it together in a weird way and. Yeah, I I can listen to it every day, but it's it's very interesting to listen to from as a fan of music, you know. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's like um, Beefheart did one of my favorite Christmas carols, <laughs> and it he like, has a song. Merry Christmas. <laughs> well, it's uh, there ain't no Santa Claus on the evening train. Ho, 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 ho. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Oh, so funny. Beautiful Christmas Carol. Beats the beats the shit out of Silent Night. You know, it's really it's really good. <laughs> so, what's your uh, what's your favorite? Um, um, or pick one of your top five favorite musicians. Uh, um, I, I Zappa. Zappa's in there, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's probably, uh, you know, in terms of, of modern or contemporary musicians, yes, because he's the only musician who's both in the Jazz and Rock Hall of Fame. Really? And, yes, and he also recorded a lot of classical music. I didn't know classical that. Music. Yeah, and it's always being played especially in europe his classical music didn't catch on as much in the united states but if you get hot rats which i would strongly suggest download it because you're in for a treat it's just expanding music because it's just so cool and so innovative and although hot rats was recorded like 50 years 51 years ago or something uh it's timeless because it's just the music is just so innovative uh so there's classical sounding stuff there's jazzy stuff on there uh and then there's stuff that's almost like a soundtrack hmm. you know he just did amazing amazing work yeah so he's, he's probably my 
you know, the old, if you could only choose one person's body of work uh, on the desert island, whose work would you take? For me, it would probably be Zappa. All right. I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I don't really know much of him, so I, I better get into it then. Yeah. I don't know if you better, but I think you might enjoy it. Yeah. You know, it's not a moral imperative, but it's uh, <laughs> certainly certainly something I think you'd enjoy. Yeah. Uh, are, th- are there any areas of the uh, podcast, or we're already recording and we have the first – 10 minutes, which is discussing Frank Zappa. Yeah, uh, I, I is, guess, it, I guess I figured like, <laughs> you know, we, we might as well just keep, keep going. <laughs> I, I enjoy these kinds of conversations and, and generally, um, yeah, the show is not super structured. You know, we, we, uh, beforehand, I just kind of talk about like, all right, what do you want to talk about? And then we just kind of roll into it. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with talking about Zappa before we, uh, talk about the book. When I saw your book, pop up on Amazon, I I just kind of Googled your name and I uh, was like, well, mm-hmm. you know, this, this looks like a very interesting, this this looks like a book I'd be interested in, so let me look into who's behind this. And then I found this um, media company that makes these amazing videos. And that's, uh, that's, uh, that's your, uh, you run that, right? Uh, yes. Okay, yeah. Can you tell me a little about, a bit about that? Well, you know, since you have such a strong first impression, I probably shouldn't fuck it up by. uh, (laughs) So we'll just say thank you to your listeners. And it's been great talking to you. Just listen to Diederik talk about what a great person I am. And uh, (laughs) uh, so I'm sorry, what was the question? Uh, I'm just curious about your uh, the 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 media company that. that you that you run that you pilot that um, does the Victoria's Secret videos and uh... and music videos actually also uh, it's called Madoff Productions an amazing coincidence that it's the same as my last name and uh, I I had a fascination with I've always had a fascination with film and I had an opportunity. I guess I'll go back in time a little bit is that, you know, initially my first adult career uh, was when I was about 20, 21, somewhere around there. Uh, I started designing clothes and uh, that happened by accident. How how Uh, does that happen by accident? Yeah, it's uh, well, what happened was I was working in this little boutique And uh, I did the buying for it, which meant that I would go to New York. The store was in Madison, Wisconsin, where I went to college. And I'd go to New York to try to find unique stuff. The owner of the store was only a couple, three years older than I. So, you know, it was a very interesting, eclectic little store. And since Madison was a very big college town with a big population of students, it was a major stop for all the touring rock bands. And uh, so I would find cool stuff and the bands would come into the store to buy stuff. And uh, one day a dear friend of mine called me up and said, can you think of a gig that would earn more than bank interest? (laughs) And I said, well, I see what we sell and I, you know, could always draw. So I said, uh, I'll start a clothing company. 
having no idea what I was talking about. Uh, and he said, okay. And he sent me what was the time more money than I ever had at one time. And that was a whopping $1,500. And I started a uh, clothing company. And in spite of my ignorance, uh, the company was doubling every three or four months. Oh, wow. And so within a couple of years, I had 110 employees, an office in New York, two factories going. And, uh, you know, had grown the company substantially. And, uh, you know, that was a chapter in my life that was quite interesting because I learned an awful lot. And the main thing that I learned without going deep into the, into my fashion history, uh, was that I found when I, when I made the transition into film and the way that I made that transition was kind of the same offhanded way that I started my first career in fashion my second career being in film started in, in similarly, similarly uh, offhanded way. And uh, that was meeting some people who were making a movie. And uh, one of the people that I bought, fa- bought fabric from his son was getting involved with some people to make a film. And he said to me, do you know anything about the movie business? And I said, not really. I mean, I love film, but I don't really know anything about the business. And he said, well, you're a smart kid. You got a good head on your shoulders. My son's your age. Would you mind meeting him? I said, no, I'd be happy to. And in meeting him, that ended up facilitating a transition into the film business. How old were you at the and time? 24. Wow. And- I think 24. Wow. So and before you were 25, you, you already ran a company with 110 people. Yeah. That's impressive. Yes. Well, I also learned what I don't want to do, which is run a company with 110 people, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, because what happens is, you know, and I'm, I'm not going into all, all the details just in the interest of, of your listeners and your time, but, uh, I had a very good financial backer, you know, cause my business was growing so fast that I needed financial backing and a very good man in Wisconsin, uh, was my backer. And he said to me, um, I told him I wanted to move to New York after being in business for about two and a half years, three years, I knew I had to be where things are happening and things weren't happening in Footville, Wisconsin, which is where my factory was outside of Madison. Uh, I wanted to be around people that were doing stuff and, you know, where there was an energy. I'm, I, I'm a stimulus junkie. And so I got to the point where I wanted to move to New York and my backer said, look, uh, I invested in your company because you provide employment for Wisconsinites. They bank at my bank. And if you move to New York and move the base of the business there, I'm not going to continue to back you. And that wasn't unreasonable. He had stated his reasons for backing me from the beginning. But what I was, you know, clear about was that I needed to move on. And I wanted to be around. I was a novelty being a young person who had started a business in Wisconsin. And I wanted to be around other people who were doing exciting and interesting things. And, uh, I did made the decision to close the business and move to New York. 
you know, without a job, without a place to live, without knowing anybody or knowing what I was going to be doing. But that sense of adventure, moving to a city like New York and, and doing something as opposed to scaring me because, you know, so many people said, you're moving to New York. Yeah. You have a job lined up? No. Do you have a place to live? No. Well, do you know anybody there? No. Well, aren't you afraid of what's going to happen if you move? I said, I'm actually afraid of what's going to happen to me if I stay. You know, I was ready for something different. And I had saved up enough money that if I lived very modestly, that I could uh, last for about a year. And I was traveling a lot and living in different parts of the city. And then I ran out of money. So I started another clothing company and then sold it. And during that time is when I met these people who were making a film. And that was an interesting group of people. Uh, the person who was directing the film and was Dennis Hopper, if you ever knew who he was. But Dennis Hopper, I guess, to uh, most people was famous for being in the classic film Easy Rider, uh, right. which was a neat movie, but he was also in Blue Velvet. And he did a lot of stuff. He was also in Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean. Right. And, uh, in, and he was in Apocalypse Now with Marlon Brando. Interesting. Oh, wow. Interesting guy. And uh, I just had this strong intuitive feel for the medium. And uh, decided after getting some exposure to it that that's what I wanted to do. So I taught myself how to shoot, taught myself how to edit, taught myself how to light and do all the things that were necessary to become a filmmaker. And, uh, you know, it's kind of how I did the fashion business. You know, I didn't know anything about it. I had to, I was self-taught in terms of how to design and manufacture and do all that kind of stuff. And, um, the thing that was probably the biggest impact was businesses are more alike than not alike. And putting together a line of clothing and designing it uh, and manufacturing it and selling it and getting paid for it and all that is the same thing as making a movie or making a commercial. You know, you have to have an idea, sketch out the idea in film. It's called a storyboard. Uh, you have to organize what labor you need to make it happen. You have to know what materials you need along with that labor to make it happen. How much is it going to cost you to do it? Is there a market for what you're doing? How are you going to distribute it and get it out there? And so I found that actually everything I had done in fashion, it wasn't like I was starting over the same knowledge base that I had built up in terms of process and protocol in the uh, fashion applied directly to making films it was literally the same protocol, hmm. communicate an idea, cost out the idea, distribute the idea, get paid for the idea so you can do more ideas. <laughs> and as I have found, you know, that's true in, in every business. And so it, it helped me kind of decode what doing business was. When I realized these things aren't dissimilar, they're very much alike. I mean, it's certain jargon separates them, but, Again, the protocols are very much the same. So getting into film was a natural transition for me. And, uh, and I love doing it and uh, have had the great fortune of working with wonderful people. 
and have, you know, traveled the world and done all kinds of stuff. And it's really fun. And what I found out about myself is that aside from not wanting to, to manage lots of people, like when I'm a, I'm a director on a set, I've had crews of over 120 people uh, and it's broken down into subcategories. But the point is that there's people that you depend on to get things done. So management, collaboration, all those things come to play no matter what kind of business you're doing. If you're running a dental clinic, you know, you've got a bunch of dentists to manage and, you know, and everybody's billings and all of that kind of thing. And again, so many of these things are the same, no matter what you're doing. Uh, But what I discovered about myself, and I was fortunate to discover this when I was quite young, is I love the process of actually doing it. You know, the doing is what's fun for me. Being in production is what's fun. Business is a knowledge of business is a survival tool for me. It's not something that, oh, I love the business of the business. I don't like the business of the business. I think, but I know how to do it. I think that's true for most creative people. And and I think that's also why it's difficult for a lot of creative people to to make money or make a career out of their creativity. Because there's... But see, I think that's a myth. It's, yeah. You're right. You're right, but I think it's a myth. And here's why, you know, it's a myth. Is because there's lots of very creative people that are very smart business people. And, you know, I go into this in in my book, you know, there's a whole idea of, oh, I'm right brain, I'm more spatially related and creative and left brain is much more organized. And so I'm really a right brain person. Well, that is also a false dichotomy. There is no such thing as a left or right brain person. Uh, The person who did the initial studies on that, uh, neuropsychologist Roger Sperry, won the Nobel Prize for his study in split brain research. And that's where the whole idea of left, right brain happened. But it was just a few years after he won that award, which I think was in 1991. What was discovered is brain mapping became much more sophisticated in the next few years. And what was realized is there's a tremendous amount of crosstalk that happens between the two hemispheres of the brain. And so you could look at the brain of a painter and you could look at the brain of a dry cleaner and it would be essentially the patterns were the same in terms of the crosstalk between the two hemispheres of the brain. Hmm. And there is no such thing in reality as a left or right brain person, even though that myth somehow has still exists and you can, you know, if you go online and search left brain, right brain, there's all kinds of books on it. There's all kinds of quizzes you can take. What kind of person are you left or right brain? And it's all bullshit. What if you compare a, uh, like a painter to an economist or something? Is it still the same story? Same thing. Yeah. Same thing. Okay. Yeah. You cannot distinguish a person's traits or occupation by looking at their brain. Okay. Uh, there's crosstalk between those two hemispheres. And uh, so a lot of creative people are bored by business or a lot of people disqualify themselves saying, oh, I can't do business. So then what you need to do is either hire or partner somebody that does, because if you don't, you're going not, you're not going to survive or you're going to be taken advantage of. So you need to know that. 
you know, and business is a survival skill. Now, I know people that find the business of the business really interesting. I don't, but I know how to do it and I have to know how to do it because that's how I survive. Hmm. And any creative, if they want to survive, needs to know, even if they're in a fortunate position of being able to hire people to do that part of their business, if they aren't aware of the business of the business, there's a really high likelihood they'll get screwed over. And that's just a world. And those stories are legion, especially in the music business. Oh, yeah. But those stories are legion in, in all business. How these people made so much money, it seemed, but they ended up getting ripped off for so much money. You know, it's not an uncommon story. And so a knowledge of business is important because it is a survival skill. And this is what and, this uh, book is about, I assume. It, well, that's a good portion of the book is yes, because most people have the attitude that they're one or the other. And as a matter of fact, when we were trying to sell the book, when my agent was trying to sell it, we first went to one of the major business book manufacturers or publishers, I mean, and their response was, why would business people want a book about creativity? Total disconnect. Why would they want it? Then we went to uh, one of the major psychology and self-help books publishers. And their response was, why would creatives want a book about business? And they didn't get it. And then we went to Hachette. And Hachette's one of the largest publishers in the world. And their editor, uh, Dan Ambrosio, said, we love the idea of the hand-in-glove relationship between business and creativity. Nobody's done this. This is a great idea. We love it. And they bought the book and they got it, which was what was so gratifying from my end because uh, I have seen so many businesses fail because of the attitude that, uh, well, I'm creative. I don't know business. And again, you need somebody to complement your knowledge And there are certain things you just need to know or you're going to get screwed. Right. You know, it, it's not a terribly kind world out there in a lot of fronts. And so, you know, you want to surround yourself with the best people, but you also want to surround yourself with a certain knowledge because right. that knowledge can armor you against some of the issues you might have. Hmm. So, the, yeah. So the biggest pitfall is for people who are creative, uh, they just kind of ignore the business part because they tell themselves I'm creative. I'm not a business person. So I'm just going to be creative and leave it at that. Right. That's right. You know, and, and you know, and the stories are legion and legend of all the people that have had tremendous talent, but couldn't sustain their business. And to me, you know, a knowledge of business is how I can keep doing what I love doing. Right. And so that to me in and of itself is a good enough reason to learn some business or at least know what I don't know. So I can seek the right kind of help to keep my business going. Right. Well, you also, um, you're also a photographer. Um, and if, if you were to, uh, turn that into a successful business? How would you go about that? Well, 
first of all, I'm a director and, uh, you know, I do photography and sometimes the photography is a part of the work I do, but I'm not, I don't really sell myself as a photographer. Okay. Uh, but the question is still a valid question. You know, how do you do it? And the main thing that you have to do, whether you're a musician, a director, a writer, a photographer is that, you need to give people a reason why to buy your work over somebody else's. Right. Because there's, there's endless work out there. That's right. And now everybody that has a phone thinks they're a photographer. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and they're not, it's just like everybody with a laptop thought they were an editor, you know, (laughs) a film editor. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting Years ago, I was interviewing for an editor position. I was interviewing people, you know, for my company. And this guy came in and he said, yeah, I know Final Cut and I know Avid uh, and I know all the software. And, you know, I looked at his reel, which normally I've done in advance, but somehow he got through and I looked at his work, which sucked. It was really bad. Uh, he knew how to work the equipment, but I didn't care for his work at all. And I said to him, I'm curious, if you knew how to type, would you consider yourself a writer, an author? Just because you know how to work the equipment doesn't make you an editor. You know, you need to know what you're doing. What you, you know, say? you enjoy playing... I didn't say anything. And, uh, you know, it's like you enjoy playing guitar, but you do it for your recreation to kind of cool out and just for your own enjoyment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, well, you know, I, I, I'm pretty, I'm halfway decent, but yeah, I'm, I'm not playing stadiums, you know? Right. Right. I'm just saying, you know, the difference. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Uh, and I think there's a lot of people these days who don't know the difference. They think that if they take a picture on their phone, they're a photographer. If they know how to use the software, they're an editor. Uh, And that's not the case. And it takes a long time to get really good at what you're doing. Hmm. And uh, so back to your question, if you're a photographer, how would you make a living at it? Uh, You know, you've got to, first of all, not only offer something up that's distinctive, you know, because as you said, there's so much stuff out there. You also have to get it out there, (laughs) you know, and that's another challenge. Yeah. You know, it's like if you have a film and you don't get it distributed, no matter how good it is, nobody's going to see it and it's not going to happen and you're not going to make money. You're not going to get money for another film. If you, if you release a record and, uh, or nobody downloads it or nobody buys the vinyl, you're not going to last long as a musician unless you have money coming in from other sources. And the same thing with photography, you've got to have a signature like in all the other arts, you need to have a signature so that what you do makes you distinctive and people seek you out. Right. And that's, and, and, and the hardest thing now is separating yourself from the crowd. Yeah. How how do you, how do you make yourself just, I'm sorry, go ahead. How, how do you how do you get your work out there? Because if it's even if it's really good, people are not going to see it or find it. I mean, I right. don't, 
because there's, I, I don't know how many people are on Instagram these days, although I don't think Instagram's necessarily the way to do it. Do you have to go out into the real world to print it and, and try to get it into galleries or like, yeah. Well, it also depends on your, on your goal. What kind of photographer are you? Are you doing portraits for people or are you doing fine art that you want in galleries? Are you doing things that you want sold? You know I mean? Just, you know, what kind of, who is your market? And that's something you have to know in every business. You know, if you hope to make a business out of it, you can't be the only one that loves your idea. Right. because it's not good enough, you know, to make it. So you have to do what in business is called proof of concept. You know, what I did when I started designing clothes, the first few dozen shirts that I designed and had made, I put in that little store where I worked and they sold out really fast. So I knew there was a market for it. And then I put together a bunch of samples and strapped into my motorcycle, drove to Chicago, went to 18 stores and 15 of them bought. So I knew people were going to buy what I was designing. Right. You know, uh, so you need that proof of concept to know that people are going to buy it. And, you know, there's a wonderful artist, Zaria Foreman, who I interviewed in my book. And, uh, I said to her, what was it like when you sold your first piece of art? How did you even know what to charge for it? Because that's a big question, right? Why are some people's work cost so much and others so much less? Oh, wow. She you makes know? Uh, pastel drawings. Are you looking at like the icebergs and stuff yeah. like that? Yeah. That, you know what, how she does that? Oh my God. That's amazing. With her fingertips. Wow. Those are actually done with her fingertips wow. and they're like photo real. That's crazy. It works astounding. Yeah. Isn't it amazing work? And do you see how big it is? Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. Her work's astounding. So, but that's you know, when she was started right there. That's know. right. That's right. And, uh, so unique that actually NASA hired her <laughs> to go to the North pole in the Arctic with her so that she would do creative renderings of things. Uh, Cause she also through her work tracks climate change. All right. So anyhow, you know, uh, I said, so that first time that somebody wanted to buy a piece of your art, how did you know what to charge for it? She laughed and said, you know, I didn't, I had no idea. So, so I went around and, you know, because of the size of the painting they wanted, I, uh, went to some galleries, looked at stuff and thought, well, it's a painting. It's about this size. And here seems to be kind of the cost for paintings that size. And so charged 5,000 bucks for the painting. And I said, how did they respond? She said, they bought it right away. <laughs> I said, wow, that's cool. And how did you feel? And she said, well, first I was just stunned that they bought it. <laughs> And I said, so how long ago was that? And she said, about 10 years ago. And I said, and so how much would that painting sell for now? And she smiled and said, over 100000 <laughs> So everybody is reluctant 
to sell their work because they don't know how to price it. They don't want to price it too high, so they lose the sale. They don't want to price it too low, so they feel unhappy with it, uh, but they still want the sale. And so that's also a, a business calculus that you have to make. Right. You know, because it's not just the value of the painting, it's the value of maybe being in the right living room or the right gallery or whatever, where other people can see it and want your work and you can raise your prices as you go, but you got to start someplace. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still just amazed by, uh, by that art. It's uh, very beautiful. That's the cool thing about my class is I actually saw her on uh, a TV show, CBS Sunday Morning, and which is a great show. And uh, so they did this segment on her, and then they said her gallery was in Brooklyn. So I sort of tracked down her gallery and then communicated with the gallery manager because she's successful now. Uh, I'd never heard of her, but that doesn't mean anything. And uh, wrote her an email about, this is the class I teach. I'd love to have you as a guest. And she thought the class sounded cool. And she did the class, and she's wonderful. And uh, that's the great thing about teaching is, number one, I keep, to get, I keep learning from the guests that I have. But I can reach out to people like that. And if they're kind enough and generous enough to say, sure, I'd love to do the class, they can impart the knowledge to my students, to me. And, you know, I get to meet fascinating people as a result. Yeah, you're also um, a teacher at a university in New York. Yes, I teach at uh, Parsons School for Design. And the course, Creativity let me start that again. <laughs> the course, uh, Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas, uh, is the basis for the book. Uh, you know, I've been teaching this course for about 13 years, and um, I've interviewed a lot of really great people. And, you know, I just wanted to reach a wider audience than just the classroom, because I think what these people had to say and the knowledge they had to offer was really special. And, uh, you know, I learn from them and I also learn from the students. And so I'm, I'm a constant lifelong learner, you know, cause I have kind of insatiable curiosity about all kinds of stuff. And I think that's also an essential trait of a uh, creative is you want to always keep increasing your mental palate, you know, go to museums, go to movies, listen to music, talk to new people, you know, just, diversify the range and type of people and work that you look at to constantly widen the birth of your knowledge. Right. Okay. And <clears throat> I see you also, um, for this book, you also talked to Tim Ferriss, I see. Yes. That's, uh, what, what, what did he have to say about this? Well, you know, Tim's a very smart, interesting guy. We, he and I met, uh, just as his very first book, which launched his career, The 4-Hour Workweek, uh, we met right when that was coming out. So he hadn't achieved the success that he was to achieve. So that was very early on. And, you know, we met and it was going to be for a half hour. And we ended up talking for like three or four hours about cognitive neuroscience and all kinds of things. And we just hit it off. Smart guy. 
and he's a smart guy who became a brand. Yeah. You know, so he's, he's somebody who there's a large group of people, which you can witness by his podcast and the sale of his books. He's had a number of bestsellers now are curious about what he thinks. Yeah. And what his insights are. So, you know, uh, Tim has been very successful in establishing himself in a certain niche that is proven not only to be lucrative, it's been sustainable for, you know, we met 12 years ago and uh, you know, he's been able to build a really good career and it's all on his ideas. So he was a, a natural to be a uh, interview subject for my class because he is, does make a living with his ideas. If I look at the list of subjects, uh, I, I haven't read the book yet because it's not out over here yet, but it's it's on Amazon in stock. It says, uh, ask these vital questions that will help you determine your value, be smart about your hustle, ruthlessly edit your creative projects, overcome fear and doubt, create a successful long-lasting career on your own terms. There's There's some people i know who are also doing creative things and some of them i can just tell like like yeah i think there's something there and some of them i think well i can see that you're trying but i I just don't see anything coming off that is is that also in the book how, how to look at yourself in that way like how do you how do you know whether you you got something or not well one of the th- key questions to ask yourself is, you know, as I said before, is this, am I the only person that thinks this is a good idea? Right. (laughs) Am I the only person that thinks it's cool? And so you always want support from your friends, but you also want honesty. Right. And you also though, if you can, you want to avail yourself of people that know what they're talking about. So, you know, there's going to be people that will be very encouraging, but they have no idea what they're talking about. Right. You know, they, they don't know how hard it is to write a book. Yeah. How hard it is to get a publishing deal. Uh, how you have to, you know, your work is not nowhere near done when you've written the book. Then you got to promote it. Yeah. How do you, you know, do that? You gotta do <laughs> what I'm doing now. You know, you do podcasts, people approach you, uh, you do podcasts, I've done radio interviews, articles, you know, there's as much work after you've written the book, if you want to get it out there. And, and by the way, I'm still learning. This is all new territory to me. Uh, but it's, you know, the work is only begins once you have the, the book, uh, and then you got to sell it. You got to make people want it. And why should, there's a billion books out there. Why should people be interested in my book and what I've got to say? Right. And, you know, I, I think because the book entertains and it educates and uh, it inspires people. That's the feedback I've gotten. And that's a, that's, those are worthy things. And, you know, I, I believe in what I wrote and I think that because I think there's really ideas that have value that I'm putting out there that, and am able to also share the insights of the range of people that you see that are in the book. You know, I think that there's something really valuable there. And I think it's something great 
that people will benefit from and learn from. So it's worth it to me to go through what I have to go through to get the word out. But, you know, it's, it's every, a lot of people, one of the big misconceptions, if you're a musician, yeah, well, we finished the album. Well, so that's only the beginning. Now you got to get it heard. (laughs) You got to get people talking about it. You have to raise awareness. So they even want to listen to it. And that's a whole other job unto itself. Once you're established, it's easier because people are anticipating what you're doing. So you have a built-in market already because you have that proof of concept. But initially you don't have that. So it's a lot of work just to get to try to build demand for it. Yeah. And and that book, this book goes into that getting over that first hurdle that seems so difficult. Yeah. Which is that you have to, first of all, you have to do it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, well, one of the um, one of the reasons why the short intro and the cover spoke to me is because it kind of applies to everything that I'm up to. You know, like I I just have a pretty good full time job, but I've been making photos for ten years. I've been working on 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 a novel for like over ten years, and I'm doing this podcast. And at one point, I was thinking like, well, I'm I'm doing all this stuff. I got like thousands of pictures on my computer and some of them I think are pretty good and if I show them to my friends they think they're good and um, I'm like well you know what, what what am I doing with all this you know I'm just creating all this stuff and uh, it feels better to do that than to watch TV or play Xbox or something with my with my <laughs> idle time but but I'm like well but how, how am I gonna turn all this into something yeah how can how can I turn this into a career so when I, when I saw that book, I was like, "Yeah, I gotta, I gotta send this guy a message, see if he wants to talk to me because this is very interesting." What's also kind of interesting is because my my cousin, he's a um, he's also a paint, he's a painter, and I saw him turn that into an actual career. And he has a pretty pretty impressive gallery with with some other guys. Like they work together, three of them, and um, you know they're kind of known in the city locally and you know they were they were about to fly off to china to try to sell their stuff but uh yeah the whole covid thing got in the way so mm. but that was gotten everybody's way yeah oh man and but it, that was just very interesting to see how um you know a group of people managed to make it work and so this is uh, this is the kind of stuff they make mm. It's pretty intense, very colorful. Yeah. They also got this deal at BMW. It's like they painted a car for them. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, you know, they're 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 making things happen. And um That's yeah. neat. Yeah, I, I sometimes just try to um try to ask them like like how do you guys do it? It's like, yeah, I don't know, man. We just we just paint. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, they're they're their painting is uh, clearly resonating with people. Yeah. Uh, you know, I assume BMW uh, paid them to, to paint the car. And, you know, so their work resonates. And, uh, again, you never know until you put it out there. Yeah. So all you do before you put it out there is everybody's speculating all the time but you don't know until you put it out there. You know, I, ha- I have a good friend who is a, 
you know, who's a fine artist, it's not easy to make a living off your creativity because uh, there's so much competition for attention. Oh yeah. And you have to be able to put your ideas across in a way that's compelling. So, uh, you know, your cousin's doing distinctive work and is discovered since he's sold work and even gotten some work sponsored, there's a market for it. How big that is, he's in the process of trying to discover that. Right. But it seems to be that there's clearly encouragement that there's a market for his art. And that becomes, you know, whether it's art or whether you're making an article of clothing or a new app, the marketplace tells you whether or not people want it. But you have to get it out there effectively and build demand. So step one is to to actually do it and make it. And then step two is to, yeah. to actually get try to get it in front of people. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you walked into a gallery or heard some music or whatever and said, oh, I could have done that? Yeah, that's a good point. But the, what's the difference between you and them? They did it. <laughs> You're looking at it, you know? <laughs> So you've got to take that risk of getting your work out there. And would you say that process has, has that process become easier and more difficult with the digital age and with phones and computers? And Well, I think it's easier to reach more people because the web has a global reach, but you're also competing against everybody else too. So, you know, if I Googled painters, who knows how many thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of people that would come up. So well, you'll, you'll probably you land know, on Rembrandt and Picasso. Like you'll find that people first. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Like many, many, many people first. But the point is, so yes, you can, I think it's easier to reach, potentially reach a wider market now because of technology, but uh, it's hard to get attention because there's so much, so much competing for that attention. Right. And so there is no magical path. You know, if anybody who says, Oh, it's easy. All you have to do is these seven steps and you're, you've made it. It's just not true, hmm. but you can sell books making those claims, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but it's, you know, it's just not true. And, uh, but, and, and I think probably, your cousin's a good person to talk to because it's somebody, is it a he, your yeah, cousin? Yeah, he's a super charming guy. And so he's charming. He's doing interesting work. He's sold some pieces. He did a commercial sponsorship with BMW. You know, how did it happen for him? He'd probably be somebody good to have on the podcast. Yeah. You yeah, know? I already talked to him a couple of times, but uh, like, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, he did. He did it. Yeah, he did it or he's on his way to do it. Right. You know, he's got some good positive encouragement early on, which is fantastic. It's also interesting what you say is um, about if you walk into a gallery or see something and you would say, hey, I could do that. It was, have you ever heard of a photographer called Peter Lick? Australian no. guy. Uh, he, he sold the most expensive photograph ever for like six and a half million for one photo. Wow. Yeah, it's like um, it's a photo of of the uh, sun shining into into a canyon, and there's dust in the canyon, and it almost looks like a ghost. 
it's very very pretty photo and he sold it for 6.5 million and if you <clears throat> if you look at all his photos it it looks they're all good photos but on forums and and message boards everyone just talks trash about him it's like yeah it's all oversaturated pictures it looks like the average instagram gallery but in the meantime the guy's got galleries all over the world and he's you know he's selling his work for 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 crazy amounts of money and um so yeah that's that's interesting to uh to to hear that comment uh, from you what you said well when you when you <coughs> achieve a level of success especially with social media where it is trolls are bound to turn up right people who are jealous of your success are bound to turn up so people who trash you because you're doing what they'd like to do and so instead of actually doing the work they spend their time criticizing other people and uh and what's the benefit of that you know uh you know i think that's really a shame but that's how it often goes so this guy i don't know his work but he's gotten tremendously successful and it's not going to make those people any more successful to try to trash him. Uh, what's the point? But if you think you can do something better, do it and try and get it out there. Right. But it's a lot easier to sit on the sidelines and, and throw rocks at people than it is to put your work out there yeah. and see that it's not so easy to accomplish. Well, putting your work out there also comes with a risk because you you're putting it out there yeah. open for criticism and i think that's yeah, right a lot of people are afraid of that too yeah, you're right they are they are but you know that's something that you that you have to get past and you have to create a moat between you and your work right because you know uh if they say you know i saw Diederich's photography it's shit you know <laughs> who cares about his photography, you know, well, first of all, they don't know you. So they're not talking about you as a person and they're trying to get at you by criticizing your work, but you as the creative have to understand that there is a distinction and a difference between yourself and the work that you put out there because otherwise it can be really hurtful because there's some nasty people out there. Oh yeah. And we certainly know that just looking at the internet. Oh yeah. <laughs> you oh, know, <laughs> yeah, really. That's right. So I think it's important if you're a creative and you're putting your stuff out there that you, uh, you have to protect yourself and you have to understand that there are people like that out there. And, uh, you know, I know a number of famous people and, uh, I've asked that, you know, how do you cope with that? And he said, you know something, I don't look at social media. Yeah. <laughs> and that's their response because they know that a good percentage of it is just going to be that kind of hateful stuff. Yeah. And what's the point? And, a lot, and some, quite a lot of people actually just live to rile people up. And, you know, if they just get right. a reply, then, then they're just uh, mission accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, you know, to me, it's, I would hope that people have a greater purpose in life than trying to tear other people down. Right. Although if you, if you uh, 
look at Twitter. I, I try not to, but it's also just interesting. That's why I just log in every now and then. But it's just it's just all negative. It uh, that right. makes makes me want to just get away from from social media in general. And so if if you're creative and you you want to make that work outside of the out w- without using social media, is that still possible? You think, or uh, or is that just a bad idea to to play it that way. I mean, I think that you need to use whatever tools at your disposal that you think you can use effectively. And it depends on who you are and, you know, where you're at. Are, are there some, uh, you know, are you in a position, for instance, to hire somebody to effectively manage your social media so you can get stuff out there on a regular basis, build a following so that people become familiar with your work? Uh, doesn't mean you have to do it yourself or you may not be in a position financially to hire anybody, but you know, there are ways to get yourself out there even when your financial resources are low. Uh, and that can be doing it yourself. That can be uh, working with somebody who gets something else out of it. You know, like if you have a, if you have a, with your photography, maybe a trade photographs, you know, maybe you barter something. I mean, there are ways that you can work with people that can help you do things and extend their reach or people who are trying to uh, show that they know how to manage social media and you can give them the chance to expose themselves and their work. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways to build your own mini networks of support. Hmm. It just takes time, but it can be done. It just takes time. But I think, you know, these days, it would be very hard to get that attention because you have to go where the eyeballs are. Right. So where are people looking? And that's where you have to go, where people are looking to do what you want to do. Right. Well, that's that's also interesting that you put it that way because one thing my cousin did, like he, he um, managed to get his couple of his paintings in some restaurants. And mm-hmm. he, I, I bet he, that he just made some kind of deal, like get to hang my painting here and I eat a couple times here and you can have it or something like that. I mean, I I just made it up, but I can imagine him doing something like that, and you know that's yeah. that's also a way to do it. Something you can do with your photographs: go to a coffee shop, tell them that you'll give them uh, X percent of any painting that's sold. Yeah, and that they can choose their favorite one, and you'll give it to them. Right, and and use their walls as gallery space if they hadn't thought of doing that. I mean, I've seen that. That's not an original idea. I've seen this before. But there's ways, that's what I mean, of getting yourself out there and getting stuff seen. You don't know who's going to see it in that coffee shop or in that restaurant. Yeah, that's and true. that can lead to something. So you get the ball so, rolling. Yeah. And you don't really ever know what's going to work until it works. Yeah. So you just got to you just gotta try. Back to the original idea, just get it out there. If you don't get it out there, you got nothing to work with. Right. And then it's all just conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What's one big takeaway that you got from interviewing all the people for your book? One thing that you kind of just like learned, like, hey, this is something I learned while uh, while working on this book and talking to these people. Uh, I think the main thing, uh, and I can't say I learned it, it confirmed my belief, is that probably the most important trait is perseverance. Okay. 
you just got to keep at it and you got to keep doing the work. There is no magic. I don't know. I know lots of successful people, you know, traditional definition of success. I don't know any successful person that doesn't work their ass off. It's a lot of work and it's work that you do all the time. Doesn't mean you never take a vacation or never take a break. But uh, what it does mean is that you work really hard and there's nobody I know that has achieved success without really working hard unless they happen to be just born into money and don't have to do anything. Uh, But everybody that I know, whether they've started more traditional businesses or more uh, what might be considered creative businesses, everybody works really hard. My friends that are musicians work really hard. My friends that are painters and writers work really hard. My friends that are, you know, doing, uh, venture capital work really hard. Everybody I know that does well works hard. Long and weeks, I think the myth is, yeah. And I think that the myth is often that you don't, you know, that somehow something happens and, and the hard work is over and the hard work's never over. Cause if you're trying to sustain a career, you're always going out there and you're always having to work hard. And, and that's the thing that most people don't talk about is that it's difficult and it's a lot of hard work. And because most people like to present a much more perfect image of themselves and their lifestyles. But the truth is it requires that hard work in order to be successful. And it's not always going to be fun. Uh, That's for sure. (laughs) That's for sure. That's correct. All right. Well, is there um, like one, one more uh, takeaway that you want to share with my audience? Like one, one thing that you, uh, want to get out there like say like you know if if you're a creative person besides uh like the the hard work and perseverance and uh, everything we talked about in the last hour yeah stay curious constantly avail yourself of new ideas uh and i think that the the more diverse your social contacts are the more diverse your cultural contacts are uh, you know, you may be into rock music, go to a classical concert. Stuff's lasted hundreds of years. Why has it lasted hundreds of years? You know, listen to the music, always be learning, always be educating yourself, always be exposing yourself to new ideas. And that's absolutely critical. Uh, if you lose that curiosity, I don't know how you can be creative because creativity is principally about solving problems and solving those problems is, you know, how do I solve that? How do I do that? And so always asking yourself questions and always educating yourself and always being curious is I think absolutely critical. All right. I think that's a, that's a great answer. Where can people find a book besides Amazon? Books named uh, Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. You can, uh, yeah, it's it's on Amazon. I'll put a link on my website as well. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, you you also um, said something about a LinkedIn group. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So uh, the book is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Apple Books, Google Books, uh, ebook.com, all of those. Uh, And LinkedIn, I started a group 
called uh, Hashtag Creative Careers. And I just started that recently, and I'm hoping that it becomes an idea, you know, an idea exchange place where people share ideas about creativity, uh, put out questions about issues they have in terms of some of the things we've been talking about. And I hope that it gets a real uh, robust dialogue going on among people and supporting people and their creativity. Uh, I have a website, which is acreativecareer.com. And that has clips from my class, extended clips from my class with the guests that I have. And then I also have a Instagram site at a creative career. And on there, you'll see short clips because the full length on an Instagram clip is a minute, but there's short sound bites from a lot of my guests that are also, you know, interesting too. Uh, so between the book, the website, Instagram, and that, uh, creative careers group, you know, hopefully it inspires people and, and uh, entertains them because there's some of these people are just so interesting and all of them have unique stories. And so you can get a sense of, of all of that. And of course I hope people get the book because I, I do believe I've had people write to me and say that I just finished reading your book. I want to read it again. And this seems like something I can keep going back to because at different stages in your career, you have different issues. Sometimes it's how do you get it out there? And that can be your first issue that you have to confront, but there's always along the road, other obstacles. And the the only thing, the other thing I can say to your listeners is uh, don't think your problems are unique. (laughs) And if you can find help from others who have experienced the same things that might bring you some comfort and give you some ideas of how to cope with some of the challenges you may be facing. All right. Well, um, thanks very much uh, for coming on. My pleasure. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you. I, I learned some good things here, and I'm sure my uh, listeners have too. I hope so. Uh, thank you. I enjoyed talking to you too. It's my first Rotterdam podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Long distance. So thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. um, oh, I have the book ordered, and um, after I read it, uh, maybe we can uh, do it again. Maybe we'll have some more questions. Great, great. And please post a review on Amazon, especially a five-star review. <laughs> it makes a difference. I'll do that. But uh, but if you hate the book, keep it to yourself. Okay, okay. That's uh, that's also a good one. Is, is that also a tip that's, <laughs> that's in the book, like positive reviews only? Like. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> Well, thank you, Dieter. I really enjoyed it. It was very nice meeting you, and thanks for seeking me out. Thanks for uh, for coming on. You know, it's it's not as big as the Tim Ferriss show or uh, the big ones, so it's always just a real treat for me to get someone like you on the show. So, well, you're very welcome. And they didn't start off big. Yeah, that's remember that's true. that. That's true. So, well, say a few years from now, you won't even know who I am. Oh yeah, I think I interviewed Jeff. Years ago, I was just starting out. Now I'm a big, important guy. I don't talk to anybody, you know, so. That'll be nice. Although, no, I, didn't, I won't forget about you, sir. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right. It was an interesting episode, wasn't it? Thanks again for coming on, Mr. Madoff. And thank you all for listening. And don't forget to buy the book on Amazon. I got it linked in the show notes. So if you go to polarize.com and find a podcast in there, 
you can click on there and you'll find all the links to, to everything we talked about today and including a link to the book on Amazon and also visit onnit.com use the promo code Polarizer to get up 10% off and download the Alert app from the iOS App Store A-L-L-E-R-T from the iOS App Store your iPhone or iPad and also sign up to the newsletter so you never miss an episode and that's it Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll see you soon.